Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Hyperpartisanship is as old as American democracy, but now acrimony is not confined to the moment. It's a permanent state of affairs and has seeped into every part of the political process. So say political scientists Thomas Mann and Norman Ornstein. When their book, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, was published a few years ago, it stirred up considerable controversy and altered the debate about why American's government has become so dysfunctional. Now, at the end of the summer of Trump, we're going to check back in with Norman Ornstein and Thomas Mann. We're going to be talking about political extremism, polarization, another possible government shutdown is looming. We'll talk about Utah's caucusing convention system the U.S. Supreme Court's recent ruling on Arizona's redistricting commission, and talk about some possible solutions, including Australia's carrot-and-stick approach to increasing voter turnout. We'll talk about it much more, and we'll go where you would like us to as well. You can call the program at 1-800-826-1495, and you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. Norman Arnstein is contributing writer for The Atlantic, contributing editor and columnist for the National Journal, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research. Norman Arnstein, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you. Thomas Mann is Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and Resident Scholar, Institute of Government Studies at uh, University of California, Berkeley. He held the uh, Avril Harriman Chair at Brookings Institution and was Director of Governmental Studies. Uh, and before that, he was Executive Director of the American Political Science Association. Thomas Mann, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Let me start with you, uh, Norman Ornstein. Um, for those who uh, aren't familiar with, with the writings of you two gentlemen and uh, uh, even though it's a New York Times bestseller, maybe uh, somebody missed it, or just as a refresher, I wonder if you could uh, give me the primer on on, on your uh, on your theories, how the American constitutional system collided with the new politics of extremism, the subtitle of the book. Well, let me just start by saying that uh, Tom and I came to Washington at the same time, which was the fall of 1969. So uh, 46 years later, where we were both uh, immersed deeply in politics in the nation's capital at both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue and around the country, uh, we were struck uh, a few years ago, and it hasn't much changed, uh, that this was the most dysfunctional that we had ever seen our politics. Uh, there were a number of reasons for it and some history behind it, but the fundamental reality has been that our parties have become tribal in nature. It goes beyond simple polarization. You can be polarized and still solve problems. Uh, as Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch, uh, the odd couple, uh, showed uh, many, many times. Uh, but with tribal politics and with uh, what we call asymmetric polarization, where one party, the Republican, uh, verged off into a more radical uh, territory, um, where the parties became a little bit more like parliamentary parties, uniting against each other, which doesn't work well uh, when you have united government because our culture doesn't support it, and can be disastrous when there's divided government and you can get the closest equivalent to gridlock. Um, it led us to this pass, and of course it has contributed to uh, a growing disdain of Americans for politics. Uh, it's uh, never particularly uh, strong in terms of uh, appreciation of politics and of leadership, uh, which uh, leads us to a situation where not just Donald Trump, but Ben Carson, uh, and uh, Ted Cruz uh, and take Mike Huckabee and throw him in there combined are getting support from uh, over 60% of Republicans, uh, people who uh, basically are crusading against uh, politics, not just politics as usual, 
but uh, politics as every other country practices it. Uh, Thomas Mann, I wonder if uh, get you to comment on the and here's the headline from uh, the op-ed piece with you and uh, Norman Ornstein from uh, 2012. Let's just say it: the Republicans are the problem. And you talk about the you know it used to be as a football analogy, both parties on either 40-yard line. Democrats have perhaps moved to their 25-yard line. Republicans, you say, have moved behind the goalposts. Yeah, it's a rather blunt statement and and one that uh, is awkward for two nonpartisan analysts like Norma and myself to make. It's also awkward for members of the mainstream press and for uh, analysts uh, who strive uh, to, uh, to, to get the real story out and not to do the work of uh, one party or ideological group. Uh, but that's the reality that we have encountered. Uh, it's not that Republicans alone uh, are the source of our difficulty. It is, as Norm suggested, we have a situation where, where we have parliamentary-like parties in a constitutional system that, that really requires cooperation and compromise across uh, ideologies across institutions, uh, and that's bound to cause, uh, cause difficulties, but it's especially difficult when one of those parties just rejects the whole notion that compromise is a good thing uh, uh, and that uh, accepts the legitimacy of the political opposition. That's what's really happen now, and it's been at work for decades, but has picked up in, in recent years, and we're now seeing the, the full manifestation of uh, this with the Republican establishment uh, viewing it with horror, but the reality is the Republican establishment invited, uh, invited this, this kind of extreme uh, politics, the absolute opposition uh, to the other side. If they're for it, we're against it, even if we were for it a year ago. That's the, and that now has seeped down from the elected officials and uh, representatives to political activists and rank-and-file voters. You can see it in the surveys now. Of, uh, a vast majority of Republican identifiers believe it's more important to stand by your principles uh, and not compromise, uh, while a majority of Democrats feel uh, compromise is essential. No one can get their own way all the way. Uh, democracy is about reconciling uh, differences and learning to live with with one another. So I think that the argument we made was blunt. It was surprising. It uh, it uh, it went viral. Uh, it certainly was part of the discussion in 2012. And and what we normally would have thought is uh, sort of politicians are practical people uh, in general. They're they're uh, they're rational. They're reasonable. And the theory goes that a party that ventures too far to the extreme will be punished and and then compensate for it by moving into uh, into this 
somewhere near the center ground of American politics. But that hasn't happened uh, yet, and we're now struggling with uh, the consequences of it. Norman Arnstein, uh, of course, 2012, the Republicans suffered defeat, but uh, came back two years later, retook the, the Senate. And, and I hear Republicans saying that, well, it's the, it's the Goldwater-Reagan uh, pattern that's, that we're going to trust in. You know, Goldwater lost badly, but we held to conservative principles, and then we had a big victory with Reagan later. You know, it's so interesting. Uh, I've just read a couple of uh, newer analyses, although we didn't need them, uh, to realize that Ronald Reagan, uh, as uh, uh, Jeb Bush himself said uh, leading up to the 2012 campaign, couldn't possibly win a Republican nomination these days because he was too much to the left. Reagan governed largely as a pragmatic uh, figure. He moved the political process a little bit uh, and the outcomes a little bit to the right, but only a little bit. Uh, We had tax increases in the vast majority of the years that Reagan was president. He supported comprehensive immigration reform, including a path uh, to citizenship for uh, or amnesty for a large number of people who had entered the country uh, and stayed illegally and did a whole host of other things that would be anathema to today's Republican Party. Um, But I do believe that uh, you've hit on a point here, which is that the theme, the underlying cultural theme, Ted Cruz has uh, played into this a lot, that the problem that Republicans have had is that they've compromised too much and that if they stood uh, firm that Americans would rally to them is uh, a resonant one out there now. And uh, the fact that Republicans won huge victories in those midterm contests in 2010 and 2014 uh, plays into that. Of course, midterm elections, uh, one, are very different. They are uh, much smaller electorates that tend to be much more white, much more male, and much older. And the overall electorate is moving in dramatically different uh, directions, uh, and presidential campaigns are uh, very different. Uh, And at the the same time, uh, what we've seen is that uh, the presidential uh, politics uh, and the preferences that people have move in a very different direction. I would make one other point here, which is that the problem I think that Republicans have now, an establishment that is at a loss with how to deal with the rise of uh, Trump uh, and the fact that uh, so many of their figures assumed that his peak, his cap, was about 20 or 25 percent, that two-thirds of Republicans didn't like him. Um, Now there's no cap, and uh, two-thirds of Republicans are happy with him was encouraged by the Republican establishment. They played on this in those midterm contests in 2010 and 2014. They basically put gasoline on the uh, uh, flames that were already existent of the anger of Tea Party Republicans out there, then assumed they could co-opt them. And now they've been the ones who are co-opted. Let's uh, take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, Trump. And uh, you know, I think the question people are asking themselves could he actually get the nomination? Could he, you know, is he, the assumption we've made, I think, is that he's, he's a vehicle for people's, you know, anger. But uh, people will, um, if you're, you know, don't like Trump, the, the word would be wise up by the time the primaries get around. We'll talk about that. I want to talk about redistricting in Arizona. Talk about Utah's caucus and convention system. Um, Count My Vote, Vote initiative was incorporated into a bill which passed. 
a couple of years ago at the legislature. Now the Republican Party and the Constitution Party in Utah are uh, suing in court against uh, that compromise, which adds in um, a primary system. Uh, and we'll talk about much more with uh, Norman Ornstein and Thomas Mann, uh, political scientists who've written several books uh, together. They're uh, latest uh, was New York Times bestseller, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism. More following the break. Renowned author and blogger Lenore Skenazy, otherwise known as the world's worst mom, instigated an online debate after publishing an article explaining why she let her nine-year-old son ride the New York City subway alone. A battle between parenting styles in Sudan has not yet slowed down, and we want to hear from you. What's your narrative? What's your opinion? Share your knowledge and become a source for the Utah Public Insight Network, a collaborative effort between UPR and the Salt Lake Tribune. Information you share could help our reporters create a more in-depth story and could direct conversation and on-air coverage regarding this debate. Join UPIN today and help us discover our most valuable source. You. For more information, visit upr.org. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking with prominent political scientists Norman Ornstein and Thomas Mann. They've uh, written uh, several books, The Permanent Campaign and Its Future, The Broken Branch, How Congress is uh, Failing America and How to Get It Back on Track, most recently New York Times bestseller, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism. And as the summer of Trump comes to a close, which might turn into the autumn of Trump, who knows, uh, and uh, with the uh, Republican presidential debate tonight, we're uh, looking at uh, presidential politics and also we're going to take a look at uh, some specific issues in the West, in Arizona and in Utah. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us uh, by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. We'd love to know what, what you think. Uh, so, Thomas Mann, let me start with you on, on this question. Uh, could Trump win the nomination? How likely do you think it it is? Well, I think I, like many analysts, began the year uh, thinking it was impossible. Uh, I no longer think it's impossible, although I uh, I continue to think it's it's unlikely. Uh, Trump uh, is, in many respects, a uh, a, 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 figu- a very non traditional. Figure in not just in his background uh, and lack of experience in public office, but uh, as a former Democrat, as as uh, as someone who embraces positions that are anathema um, to the Republican uh, Party, and and someone who clearly is uh, uh, is. Uh, is not prepared or, uh, to be president of the United States. You would think in the end, the way our nominations work is, is that the, the groups and individuals who are most active uh, in the party, including elected officials themselves, generally steer resources around and, and settle on a candidate they think 
uh, will uh, do well, and the others tend to get frozen out and drop off. But uh, it, it turns out Mr. Trump is self-financed. Uh, he'll keep going as long as uh, he has a standing uh, standing in the polls. And um, uh, my own personal view, though, is that in the end, the the desire of Republicans to win back the White House is sufficiently strong, and the evidence suggests that uh, a Trump candidacy would would be something akin to a Goldwater candidacy, and uh, in terms of its uh, electoral viability, that the situation will change in the months. Uh, in the months of ahead, uh, but um, never say never. This is a very, very unusual year. I mean, Ben Carson is a, a case in point. I watched the debate uh, and thought he was virtually invisible, perhaps because he was polite and quiet and uh, and, and and decent. Uh, he managed to uh, emerge as a quote winner, and now he's garnering uh, almost a quarter of the Republican uh, uh, preference, uh, and as close to Trump himself. Uh, again, a very unlikely uh, candidate uh, for president, uh, one who some of whose ideas are are absolutely off the wall, and and who has zero experience in the world of. Uh, of government and politics. So it's a strange year, but we've had such people emerge uh, as candidates in the past, and they usually flame out, and more traditional kinds of uh, politicians emerge. But those traditional ones are having a hard time right now. Jeb Bush, uh, Marco Rubio, uh, Scott Walker, uh, to be sure, but there's always the chance that... uh, in the end, uh, one of these or uh, Governor Kasich of uh, of Ohio will uh, will emerge with the nomination. But I wouldn't place a lot of money on any particular outcome now. I think the real uncertainties in this race. Norman Arnstein, I wonder if I could fr- frame this this way: um, this politics of extremism is is this the new normal, and is this slate of candidates you know fitting into that new normal? You know, I, I do think that the Republican Party, much more than the Democratic Party, uh, which we can talk about uh, at some point, uh, faces a genuine crisis. Uh, you know, to elaborate a little bit on the uh, point that I was making earlier, uh, when the young guns, uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Paul Ryan, uh, Eric Cantor, uh, fanned the flames for the Tea Party movement in 2010, you had a lot of people both elected to Congress and uh, coming into other offices and a large public out there who basically thought that this was the breakthrough, that they would bring Barack Obama to his knees, that they would repeal Obamacare, that they would slash government, in effect, return us back to the pre-New Deal era. Uh, And none of that happened. And there's an enormous level of anger at these establishment figures that they've lied to them repeatedly, and that goes back uh, even before 2010. This strong cultural sense from a more radical uh, group of forces out there, who in turn have been further radicalized by a closed information loop that includes 
uh, talk radio, bloggers, and social media that gets people believing things that um, may not be true, but it doesn't matter. And that's increased that level of anger. Now, the next few weeks, we are going to see the likelihood of some kind of government shutdown, a belief almost certainly in the end that the establishment Republicans have failed yet again. They won't shut down funding for Planned Parenthood. They won't stick to a shutdown if it happens. Once again, they will cave before very long. Uh, And that means Donald Trump is going to be in a stronger position because you don't have a group of people who care much about policy specifics. They completely shrugged off uh, the fact that uh, Trump can't uh, can't tell the Kurds forces from the Kurds forces. That doesn't matter to them. He's somebody who will punch back when somebody punches him, who will stand firm, who will be successful. Now, that is not entirely a radical idea, uh, but the fact is that his position on immigration, which is a radical position, is the symbol for them that they're going to get somebody who is going to turn America upside down. And then you've got one other factor, uh, which is in the whole notion of take our country back, uh, which is a group of people who believe that as the demographic changes occur in the country, they're losing the position of dominance and prominence that they've had. All of that plays into the growing strength of a Trump and a Carson with Cruz, I've said uh, at times that Cruz is like the race car driver drafting behind the leader, Trump, hoping that he might stumble and then a Cruz can emerge. But anti-establishment and more radical views on important policy areas are now a strong force within the party, and whether the establishment, uh, a more pragmatic conservatism, a problem-solving conservatism, can return in the short run is uh, an open question. If you just joined us, we're talking uh, about the presidential election. The, uh, the second debate is tonight. Um, we're talking uh, about presidential politics. Also talk about Congress, talk about uh, uh, some solutions. And uh, some solutions are outlined in Norman Ornstein and Thomas Mann's uh, book, um, It's Even Worse Than It Looks. We'll, uh, we're going to be talking about the, all this as we go along. And uh, we have with us Norman Ornstein who uh, is with the American Enterprise Institute. Thomas Mann is at the Brookings Institution. They've written several books. The latest is uh, New York Times bestseller, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, uh, which uh, caused quite a stir and uh, I think altered the debate about what is the, the cause of the dysfunction in Washington and uh, maybe what some of the solutions are. You're welcome to join the conversation here at 1-800-826-1495. That's toll-free. Or you can join us by email to upraccess at gmail.com. Uh, so let me turn next to, uh, to Thomas Mann. I think, uh, and Norman Armstein has made a couple of references to Ted Cruz, and I, I think he's maybe, uh, you know, a, one of the symbols of the Tea Party. And, and this no-compromise attitude and not interested in government, in governing, but interested in, in winning— and I wonder, you know, and a lot of people, myself included, are not not a hundred percent sure what the goal is. Um, I wonder if you could speak to that. What, where does this anger come from? There's a lot of anger on the on the right, <laughs> and I, I'm not exactly sure what you know what what the anger is. Well, ma- many many things account for it. Remember, we've 
we've come through the most uh, 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 difficult, traumatic uh, economic crisis since uh, the Great Depression. We've we've gone decades without any real gains in in uh, median household income and and wages. We've had a uh, uh, a change in the in the social norms in society, in this case, moving left with greater tolerance on, uh, on same-sex uh, uh, relations, uh, uh, in particular, uh, changing uh, 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 notions of gender relations. And uh, I think all of, all of that has, uh, uh, has created a, a bit of a, a backlash. Then it's simply the 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 matter that uh, there is a a reaction. It's a counter reaction to almost a century's worth of uh, of public policy and uh, and government, beginning with the Republican Teddy Roosevelt, continuing through Wilson and. And, and Roosevelt, Eisenhower, and uh, all the way up to the present, government plays a more important role in our in our lives. And there's a strong bent. Uh, it's it's partly libertarian. Uh, it's now uh, this sort of manifest in political movements. Perhaps the most famous uh, leaders and financiers of that are the Koch brothers. Uh, uh, who have uh, put together a, a group of wealthy people and a commitment to spend $900 million uh, trying to influence the, uh, the election uh, this time around. And, and as, as Norm said, there's now a whole sort of media uh, infrastructure out there that, that has created uh, its own reality and People get reinforced. They're certain this is the answer. They, you know, they there's a resentment. Uh, part of it is racial. Uh, part of it is ethnic. And I think all of this has come to the uh, come to the fore. And and there are organized groups uh, involved in 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 trying to make it uh, the dominant uh, uh, force within the Republican Party. Uh, interestingly, Democrats had their, uh, had their uh, move to the extreme more in the 60s and, and, uh, and early 70s. Uh, but, but since uh, Bill Clinton's uh, election in 1992, it turned into a, a much more center left uh, party, pretty pragmatic, believing in compromise, just looking to sort of deal mainly with uh, with problems. Uh, now, um, it'll be interesting to see whether the Bernie Sanders uh, campaign and the effort to, uh, to make economic inequality uh, a much bigger feature of, uh, of our of our political campaigns, they were present in 2012, but even even more so this time. Whether in some ways that will make the Democrats change, but the reality is, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, a, a self-described socialist, has has been a fairly conventional liberal 
Democrat in Congress for uh, for 20 years, and his policies are ambitious and liberal, but uh, but in no in no way sort of extremist. And he's the sort of person who would uh, who's used to compromising. He's done so throughout his life, but the but the forces unleashed on the right uh, are of a very different sort. Uh, let me uh, follow up with that with Norm Arnstein. Uh, uh, forces on the left, and and so Thomas Mann has just said they're you know it's a, of a different order. Let's talk about the the left, and I want to fold in the Democrats with the Labour Party in the UK. You have Bernie Sanders in the US, uh, you know, polling very well in New Hampshire and in Iowa. Yeah, Jeremy Corbyn's win as the new leader of the Labour Party has Tony Blair for one wringing his hands. Uh, I wonder what what this presages. You know, I, I, I'm uh, skeptical of drawing uh, uh, deep analogies between what's happening in Great Britain and what's happening in the United States. A good part of the reason that uh, Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Corbyn won is that uh, the, the more heavyweight contenders in the Labor Party strategically uh, decided not to run this time. Labor, remember, basically uh, disintegrated because uh, of Scotland. Um, it used to be um, the stronghold in Scotland, and now the centrifugal forces in uh, Great Britain, as we have seen in other places, um, that began to pull apart uh, previous uh, unity, uh, brought in the Scottish nationalists, and that meant that Labour was not in a position to win and probably won't be for a while. So staying out until the next time around to pick up the pieces was a strategic move. Now, there's no doubt that you're seeing a backlash in Britain, in the Labour Party, against its own establishment. Um, That's a part of what's happening, and we're seeing some of that in the United States. But Greg Sargent in the Washington Post had, I thought, a very insightful piece the other day, uh, uh, looking at the distinction between the Democrats in 2008 and in 2016. One of the great vulnerabilities for Hillary Clinton back then was the Iraq War. That was a driving force for a lot of Democrats. She had supported it. Barack Obama had opposed it. That gave him a lot of traction, along with, of course, his ability to uh, uh, divide a Democratic base that Clinton had counted on. Uh, Bernie Sanders uh, has, as an issue here, uh, a kind of economic populism. It's true. But it's not nearly as divisive or black and white for Democrats. And Hillary Clinton at this point can uh, call herself a moderate and still adopt some of the rhetoric and some of the policy positions that are populist in nature and that resonate not just with the left, because the reality is that we do have growing uh, economic inequality, uh, a larger and more dominant role for uh, the ultra-rich, um, and uh, an attitude on their part that's almost like Marie Antoinette, and we have stagnant incomes. So there's some resonance that's beyond that, and you don't see uh, Democratic candidates, and I think Tom is exactly right, including Sanders, uh, proposing dramatically radical things. The most radical thing that he has proposed uh, is a single-payer uh, uh, health care system, and to most of the rest of the world, that's not radical at all. And, of course, he's not saying that if he runs, he will be able to enact it. And the other is free college for all, and I suppose that's pretty radical, um, but um, I don't think it would be rejected by people as some kind of crazy socialism. Let's take another break. When we come back, uh, I want to talk about solutions 
Um, this new politics of extremism, uh, what, what do we do? I think we'd, you know, <laughs> other than wringing our hands, what, uh, what can be done? Um, and so we'll talk about Australia. They have a very interesting system, which uh, has produced a fairly high turnout. Talk about redistricting. I want to talk about the caucus and convention system in Utah, which has uh, just been reformed, but the Republicans in Utah don't like it. They want to keep with the caucus and convention system, so they have sued to overturn the new law. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Marie Eccles Kane Foundation Russell family, providing major support for opera and classical music on UPR and strengthening the arts and humanities throughout northern Utah. As forest fires rage in the far north, soils are changing and that's a problem. Carbon emissions from permafrost combined with severe fires, it's equivalent to another United States in terms of total emissions from fossil fuels. Trees, soil, and global warming. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utime. Tom Williams, we have uh, another 15 minutes left in the conversation. You're welcome to join us here toll-free at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us to our email, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're talking with the authors of It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism. We're talking about Thomas Mann, who is with the Brookings Institution, and Norman Orenstein, who is with the American Enterprise Institute. And uh, they uh, outlined uh, this problem of extremism. They also outlined some solutions. I want to uh, start this last segment of the program talking about the caucus and convention system in Utah and uh, people in Utah are familiar, and you gentlemen uh, no doubt as well, with what happened to Senator Bennett, Bob Bennett, who uh, I think not a lot of people would would consider uh, squishily moderate, but uh, there was a uh, the, there was a contingent, however, in the Republican Party who uh, who, for the sin of reaching across the aisle um, to, for example, Senator Wyden on health care a, a few times, uh, was considered uh, insufficiently pure. And at convention, he was he was ousted. I believe he came in third. Um, the good news is for people who don't like extremism, the uh, for one, the LDS Church, which holds a lot of power in Utah, uh, it appeared did not like that either. And uh, over the pulpit in churches, um, encouraged their members to go out and participate in the uh, convention or the caucus uh, system, and, and I think members did in droves, and that, I uh, believe, had a moderating influence. Senator Hatch, uh, in part because of that, survived uh, two years later. Um, I wonder, uh, let me direct this first to, to Thomas Mann. What do you think, first of all, of caucus and conventions? Does that lead to extremism? Is primary system a better system? Um each have their uh, have their problems because each really involve a, a fraction of the eligible electorate, uh, smaller in the caucus convention systems than in the primaries, but uh, the primaries themselves become problematic because you can get 
extremely low turnout, and those who actively participate tend to be those that have uh, have more extreme views on on both the substance and the tactics that their party uh, uh, should should pursue. But uh, in general, I think it's fair to say that uh, in our book, uh, we argue the increasing uh, the size of the electorate is uh, it's a constructive move. That is, that is to say, the more uh, the more people that turn out, the more likely it is that you'll get a sort of range of, uh, of views and and uh, less likely that uh, a party or a state uh, can be sort of hijacked by a smaller group of disciplined, uh, active, uh, active members. So we've, we have certainly embraced ideas, uh, everything from making voting easier and more convenient to universal voter registration, uh, same-day registration. Uh, Norm's been active in a group like Tuesday and urging a, a very different structuring of the timing of, uh, of elections and in their means. And, and we've also been provocative in, in pointing out that a number of other democracies actually have uh, embraced something Call, it's called mandatory voting or compulsory voting, but it's really not that. It's it's mandatory attendance at the polls. Uh, if uh, if you you can go and turn in an empty ballot, in effect, voting for none of uh, the above, but uh, there's a small fine associated with not voting, uh, not showing up at the polls. Uh, it's so small and it's so easy to get around it that it's not punitive. It doesn't really reduce your freedom, but it builds up the habits from an early age, partly through the schooling and uh, uh, and and norms within the community that one of your responsibilities as citizen is is to show up at the polls, and uh, it seems. So contrary to the fiercely uh, individualistic, uh, sort of liberty-oriented Americans, but it, uh, we thought it was worth putting on the table and getting people people to think about it. Uh, and uh, and so the answer is uh, yes. We we think in the end the more uh, members of the of the public. Uh, eligible uh, citizens who turn up at the polls, the, the better off we'll be. Norman Arnstein, and I believe you two cite the Australian system. They do. You get a fine of, I think, $15 if you don't uh, show up. I thought they also had a, a carrot approach. You, you get in the lottery. I'm not sure about that. But anyway, you, I think you you advocate or at least put out the idea that maybe we could tie voting with, uh, with the lottery. Exactly. You know, uh, one of the things that we have to uh, be cognizant of is that uh, any kind of a mandate, a requirement, um, or even a fine uh, to vote is something that will uh, not uh, muster a lot of support in the United States. Uh, we don't like uh, such things. 
but we could turn that around and turn it into a positive incentive. Uh, so, you know, one of the things I hope we could uh, do here in the District of Columbia, uh, make it a laboratory for some of these ideas. Uh, imagine uh, if you had a car dealer who put up, uh, say, a Cadillac uh, Escalade, um, and uh, uh, you would have a lottery where you would pick five names at random from the voter registration rolls, and then you'd go to them in order. And the first one who could prove that he or she voted with a vote st- uh, stub uh, would get the car. All it would take is uh, one picture of that car driving away from a house because uh, poor sap didn't vote, uh, and the key's going to somebody else to increase turnout very substantially. So there are ways uh, in which you could um, create real incentives for people to vote. But along with that, uh, you know, as Tom suggested, if we simply look for ways and means to make voting easier and more pleasurable rather than harder and more difficult, uh, we could have a big impact here. And the harder it is to vote, the more small groups with deep intensity, which usually means more extreme groups, will have um, much more leverage in this process. Uh, That's also why we are open to a whole series of means to uh, open up primaries and move them away from, and the same would be true of of a kind of caucus system, move them away from being dominated by smaller, more intense groups. Uh, Thomas Mann, I want to talk about uh, Arizona redistricting. Uh, Idaho has an independent redistricting commission. Uh, and a, apparently a group of citizens in Arizona wants a uh, you know, bipartisan or nonpartisan redistricting commission. In Utah, that's been floated and shot down very quickly. The legislature is very jealous of their prerogative there. But the, uh, the uh, Supreme Court recently ruled 5-4 vote uh, in favor of that uh, independent uh, commission. I want to quote here from Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She wrote the opinion for the majority. Uh, she quotes uh, Thomas or James Madison in the Federalist Papers. She says, The people of Arizona turned to the initiative to curb the practice of gerrymandering and thereby to ensure that members of Congress would have, quoting Madison, an habitual recollection of their dependence on the people. Uh, so I wonder if you could talk about redistricting, gerrymandering, um, and, and how that affects the makeup of Congress. Yes, uh, uh Sometimes uh, uh, analysts turn to Madison, of course, the father of the Constitution, believer in representative, small-r Republican government, as as, uh, someone who'd be against uh, taking power away from the legislature. But Madison was keenly uh, uh, aware of the possibilities of... existing office holders having the power to rig the system to keep themselves and their allies in in power. In fact, he was subject to the first gerrymander under the U.S. Constitution to try to keep uh, him out of the House of Representatives when he was running from from, uh, the Commonwealth of uh, of Virginia. The the idea in Arizona uh, was that this... uh, this uh, independent redistricting commission was created by uh, ballot initiatives, uh, and and it gave power to this uh, commission to, in effect, uh, 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 
draw up and do the tasks that legislatures have heretofore uh, done. The challenge was that the Constitution gives the power to the legislature of the states. How can a ballot initiative uh, be, uh, be constitutional? The court ruled that legislative should be viewed not just as the legislature, but as the as the lawmaking power of the citizenry, and therefore upheld a process that, of course, has been used now in California, where where it's actually worked out pretty well, and and has, as you pointed out, been been used in other states like Idaho and Washington, uh, uh, in New Jersey, and. And uh, around the country, the the idea is to create an alternative to the normal sort of partisan process of redistricting. I think the first thing to say is redistricting is not and gerrymandering, uh, and this is the drawing of boundaries of legislative districts every ten years after the new census data is is available. This is not the source, the primary source of our partisan polarization, uh, uh, but it it is uh, it has been taken up by partisans in a way that really diminishes the legitimacy of uh, of the whole process. These, we now have partisan wars over uh, how districts are drawn, over what requirements like voter ID are put on citizens in order to vote, and the whole electoral system becomes a subject of, uh, of partisan battles. And I, I think the Arizona redistricting uh, decision was important because it retained for the people in those states that allow uh, ballot initiatives to uh, to overrule the actions of the legislature where there seems to be a real conflict of interest between their their own personal and partisan interest and that of the electorate more broadly. We just have uh, about one minute left. I want to give uh, Norm Ornstein the, the last word. And I want to, I'm wondering, what, what one thing would you... <laughs> If you were czar of the world, what one thing would you do to change the system, change the tone, get us away from uh, the extremism, and get us back to governing? Well, you know, the the biggest problem we have, as we point out in the book, is that it's more a cultural problem than it is a structural problem. So I wish that we could find uh, some kind of panacea here. Uh, There isn't a panacea, but if I could do one thing, it really would be the Australian system of mandatory attendance at the polls. Enlarging the electorate would help. It would make a real difference. The other thing is, if we see something happen uh, at the electoral level in the short run, a devastating defeat for a political party that would get it to rethink its ways, that might help as well. The fact is, we're not going to get out of this mess for a significant period of time, even if I could uh, get the one thing done and wave that magic wand. Well, we'll uh, leave it there. Probably maybe a good place to, to leave it. We'll see what happens. Uh, the uh, Republican debate tonight, and uh, we'll see what happens in, on both sides as the nomination process uh, goes forward. Uh, and we appreciate very much uh, Thomas Mann, who is with the Brookings Institution, uh, being with us. Thanks. Thank you. And uh, Norman Ornstein, who is with the American Enterprise Institute. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. 
and uh, their book is a New York Times bestseller. It's even worse than it looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism. I should say that's the latest book. There are many others. Uh, thanks for listening. We're going to talk about air quality uh, tomorrow. There's a CASH uh, Clean Air Consortium happening uh, next week. We'll look ahead to that to look at possible solutions. And that's coming up tomorrow on the program. Hope you'll be with us then. Thanks for listening today. It's time for Utah StoryCorps, everyday people sharing their stories at the StoryCorps recording booth in Vernal during July of this year. Lynn Smune is a lifetime resident of Vernal and is a seemingly invincible man who has given his body over to the land through the years. At 73, he has five stints in his heart from two heart attacks and a grocery list of various injuries sustained while working hard and fast in the oil field and at home on the farm. He has also been dealt his fair share of success and personal loss. He sat down for an interview with his daughter and mayor of Vernal, Sonia Norton. Okay, I am Lynn Smuin. I'm 73 years old. Lived in Vernal most of my life. I was six years old when I moved to Vernal in 1947. Uh, we moved on a ranch, 300 acres. My dad paid $5,500 for it. We worked awful hard to pay for it the next 30 years. My dad, he worked out in the oil field a lot. He didn't have a chance to help us farm. So I had a brother a year older. Uh, him and, and myself done most of the farming. Dad would come home at night and line us out for the next day, and we'd go ahead and do what we had to do, get the job done. I worked in the oil field, done different things, roughneck, and then... Picked up jobs here and there whenever I had to. Whatever I had to do to make a living. Broke every part of my body, I think. You know, both knees been operated on, both shoulders need to be. Uh, both hands, uh, every part of my body been busted up, but that just happens. Seemed like to me I was getting my teeth knocked out or crippled up continually because I was rough. I... I didn't slow down. I went too fast. and You know, we got over it. We had to get over it. We couldn't go to the doctor every time little some little thing happened. Okay. I kind of want to talk a little bit about something that maybe is a little painful, but um, tell us about Neil. Well, I had three sons and five daughters. Neil was my middle son. When he was eight years old, he was his daddy's boy, and he used to help me put up hay and follow me around. He was a little shadow, more or less, but uh, him and my older son and my grandson was playing in the dirt pile down below the crowds where I'd been hauling dirt, and the bank caved off. The two older boys got out, but Neil, he had his little army shovel, and as he come out of the bank, he kind of went along the bank, and it caved off on him and smothered him, and he was buried under about a foot of dirt. I run down there and brought him to the house. And we tried to revive him, rushed him to the hospital, but it was too late. He was a hard worker, loved to work with his dad, loved to drive the tractor, used to jump off my truck and jump in the ditch before we even got there. I guess it was his time to go. Life is tough all the way through, Sonia. You just have to grit up and go for it, and you know that. 
These conversations were recorded at the StoryCorps booth in Vernal and will be archived at the Library of Congress. Support for this segment of Utah StoryCorps Project is made possible in part by our members and Memory Mark, helping families to preserve and relive precious memories that will help keep us connected to the people we love. Information at MemoryMark.com Predatory, green, brown marmorated, gray, black and orange, red-backed. There are many species of stink bug in the U.S. You've probably seen them in your yard and were not aware of the damage they like to do to growing fruits. Think piercing, sucking mouth parts. Diane Alston is on the next edition of the Zesty Garden, along with a conversation about coconuts on Petals and Pros and canning tomatoes on Yes You Can. It's the Zesty Garden, Thursday morning at 10 from Utah Public Radio. What is a subject that you are passionate about? What do you know more about than most? Utah Public Radio wants you to share your knowledge and become a source for the Utah Public Insight Network, a new collaborative effort between UPR and the Salt Lake Tribune. Information you share could help our reporters create more in-depth stories on the things that you care about or more meaningful discussion on our flagship program, Access Utah. Become a source today. Join UPIN. For more information, visit us online at upr.org. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Science at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. The time now is 10 o'clock.